we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to the universe next door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. This show is a ministry of the C.S. Lewis Society and supported by gifts of listeners just like you. Join us as we seek to see a generation captivated and transformed by the truth of Christianity. This is the universe next door. Welcome to the universe next door. Uh, I was just thinking that how how strange it is that I talk into a microphone. No one's here. No one's anywhere near me. Well, they're near me. They're in other rooms though. Uh, and just I have to just trust somebody's listening. Like you guys, everybody who who clicks an episode, you could just press play and just mute it or walk away, and I would have no idea if no one ever heard this. Uh, so it's it's kind of a strange thing, like podcasts in general, that one person can say something and like a whole bunch of people hear it. That sounds obvious now, but if you try to explain that, like. 200 years ago it just wouldn't like people would be like what are you talking about how, how would you possibly do that uh but it really is a cool pretty cool invention uh but it's a lonely the podcast world is a lonely world it's like an echo chamber you're just talking to yourself so i trust that you are all there and listening and hopefully getting something out of this but uh the closest thing we can get besides talking to you at events like our banquet or if there's a um some sort of event or talk coming up, which I thoroughly enjoy getting to talk to you guys in person. That's really awesome. Uh, but otherwise, this is just a pitch I'm creating on as I go. I didn't plan any of this, but it's a pitch to get you to send your questions in and to send topics in that you're wondering about because I love getting those. I love getting an email, uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly. I just love seeing the email pop up and somebody having a question or a comment or even pushback or whatever. Feel free to do that because um, it really does help me know where you guys are at and what you want to hear about. And so far, so good. Uh, we're going to be doing the next question and answer the last Friday of this month. I don't have a calendar in front of me, but the last Friday of this month, it's going to be released at 5 p.m. So send your questions in ahead of time. Send them in now. Uh, and that way we can get them beforehand. And I'll probably record it just the day of and then release it. It's not like I'm taking weeks to put this together. I'll just look at your questions and answer them. Uh, but we do send the questions in ahead of time and pre-record it. So just send your questions to information at apologetics.org. That's our email. Um, any question you have, nothing's out of bounds, at least not as far as I'm concerned. Uh, so send whatever questions you have, and we would love to answer those and get ideas for topics to do that you guys are wondering about as well. And also, of course, hit follow if you haven't done that. Uh, it does make a difference because it tells you when an episode comes out and it tells you who's follow or tells us who's following the show. So it's helpful both ways. Uh, so don't forget to hit follow wherever you're listening. And uh, otherwise, I'm going to talk about Romans 9 today. I wanted to sort of go through the chapter at least somewhat briefly. Um, and you really have to take 9 through 11 and, and actually all of Romans. It's, it's really helpful when you're going to study a book. Uh, to sit down and to the best of your ability, read the book straight through before you do anything. Like before you really mark stuff down, before you really start highlighting stuff, uh, before you start looking at commentaries and finding videos or a study Bible, whatever it may be, uh, just read the book straight through and get a few different translations. Like for example, if you're going to study Romans, get the NIV and read it straight through. It's readable, but it's not overly paraphrased. Uh, and then read straight through in the ESV and then read straight through and maybe the NASB or uh, that those are the three I would probably start with. 
But do that first and then start highlighting words that you don't recognize uh, and then maybe try to do something where you can uh, write down a way to link ideas together that you see and stuff like that. But start by just reading it and you'd be surprised how different a book is and how much better you understand it, even before using any tools when you just read it through. And I've always found it really cool, uh, whether it's in a book like Romans or John or whatever you may be going through, like when you're reading through a chapter like John 3, and then all of a sudden John 3.16 pops up in its context and you're like, whoa, I know that verse. Uh, And the same with Romans. You'll you'll have like uh, a passage from Romans maybe from Romans Road that you've seen a hundred times in church or evangelizing or whatever, but then you see it in its context, in its actual uh, setting, and it's so cool to see and and to actually understand it and to see what's going on around it. But of course, we're not going to read the entirety of the book of Romans on the show or even Romans 9 through 11, but I did want to go over Romans 9, and the reason is I did an episode uh, a couple months ago on predestination because the term predestination is found in Romans 8, and it's found in Ephesians 1. And not only did the episode itself do very well, uh, but a lot of people had questions about that episode. Both of our Q&As in a row, somebody had asked a question about Romans 9. And I think it's, it's one of the most highly debated chapters in the entirety of the Bible. I forget who's famous for saying it. There's probably multiple people. But the saying is that as long as chapter Romans 9 is, is around, uh, Calvinism will be around. And if you're a Calvinist, I'm not knocking you. I'm sure you have good arguments, and I'd love to talk about that too. So we can we can still be brothers and sisters in Christ and listen to one another without agreeing on every single thing. Um, but as I was saying, it's a, it's an episode I did that a lot of people had questions about, and that I've had uh, questions a lot of time in, in person with people as well and at Bible studies, and a lot of people haven't heard another interpretation other than the common Reformed interpretation. Or maybe you're not Reformed and you're just afraid to read Romans 9. You just kind of, you kind of skip over it. Uh, You don't want to get into it because you're afraid your view might be wrong or something like that. And so I I wanted to break it down a little bit more. uh, And I think some of you will probably find that helpful because it's one of the most highly debated chapters in the Bible. And I think one of the main reasons is that basically the two views that I have in mind, they're both pretty much opposite to one another, which makes it so highly debatable. Uh, but while the the views are sort of opposite in their meaning and practicality to one another, both views are highlighting God's sovereignty. They're just both highlighting it in different ways. And uh, in some sense, they mean two different things by sovereignty, but at the very least, uh, both interpretations are highlighting the fact that God is the one in charge. God is the sole agent in charge. It's just in in chapter nine, what exactly is he talking about being in charge of? That's pretty much the difference. Uh, and the reformed view would say, well, Romans nine is, is largely about salvation and about God being the one who chooses who's saved and who isn't. Uh, and he makes that choice, not based on any merit, but based on his decision alone. And who are we to question God? I would say that's a pretty fair short paraphrase summary that it, it, my Calvinist friends would probably agree with, at least in my experience. Um, so that's that's kind of the Reformed view. But then the, the, the view I'm presenting, on the other hand, is the one we're going to spend time on here. I Like I said, I touched on it in both of the question and answers, um, but I'm going to try to spend a little more time on it today so that you can understand it. So we can start by looking at the 
uh, beginning of the chapter here. I'm reading from the NIV right now. Uh, so let's go to Romans 9 and just a quick, a, a quick brief summary of Romans 8, the, the chapter before this, it's going into Romans 9, obviously. Uh, Paul is basically talking about suffering. He's talking about the Holy Spirit helping us through suffering, whether it's literal suffering, whether it's prayer, he intercedes for us, uh, to pray because we don't even have the words to pray. And then he ends the chapter with the wonderful, uh, proclamation that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. And when he starts listing the things that cannot separate us, one of the things he mentioned is no created thing can separate us from the love of Christ. And that should give us good comfort because last I checked, you and I are both created. The only one who isn't created is God. So even I can't separate myself from the love of Christ if I have truly trusted in him and put my faith in him. Uh, so now let's pick up on Romans 9. This is where he continues on, but kind of um, kind of pivots a little bit to Israel. So in the beginning of Romans 9, he, this is Paul saying, I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. So he starts off this chapter by saying he has sorrow in his heart. He has unceasing anguish in his heart. And here he goes to explain why. He says, for I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. So notice he says that if it were possible, he would be willing to cut himself off from Christ. He would be willing to give up his salvation if it meant his people by race, the people of Israel, uh, if it meant them being saved and them inheriting the kingdom of Christ. So he loves these people so much that he would give his salvation for him, for them. I mean, think about it. Would, would you do that for somebody? If you know Christ and you love Christ, would you give up your salvation for somebody else that you love? So he says that he would do that for his people, for Israel. And then he picks up and he says, theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs is a divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God for uh, overall forever praised. Amen. So he, he says he would cut off his salvation for his own people, and then he describes the people of Israel. So he says they're the ones who the law was given to. They're the ones who were trusted with the oracles of God. Uh, they are the one who the patriarchs came from, you know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They're the ones who the human ancestry of Jesus the Messiah was traced through. The Jewish people, Israel, are the ones who the Messiah would come through. So he says all of these wonderful things and all of these uh, wonderful gifts and privileges that Israel, really Israel as a race here. So right now he's saying Israel as a race. If you are ethnically part of Israel, it, I mean, he goes into more detail on this in a minute. This is why I'm explaining this. If you were part of Israel by race, you were part of all of these things. You had all of these privileges as God's chosen people. Now, that doesn't mean that all of God's chosen people are saved, and it actually doesn't even mean that all of God's chosen people were God's chosen people. And he's going to explain that in this next chapter here. So that's how he starts off. So he goes on in verse six to say, it is not as though God's word had failed for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants, are they all Abraham's children? On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. 
In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. So let's pause here for a second again. So now after he talks about all of these privileges that Israel as a whole had and were given, he goes on to say, but God's promises, God's word hasn't failed. Because those who you see in the history of Israel and right now who aren't saved but are ethnically Israelites, well, not all who were descended from Israel are actually Israel. And this references back to Paul in, uh, in Romans chapter 2, where he says that a true Jew is one who was, is a Jew inwardly. So a true Jew is not one who is just a Jew ethnically. They're one who is a Jew at heart. In other words, one who has trusted God, one who has put their faith in God and been obedient and faithful to him. So Rahab, who was not ethically a Jew, was a true Jew. Uh, Ruth, who was not ethically a Jew, was a true Jew. Somebody who trusted in, in God and someone who put their faith in him and was faithful to him. That's what makes somebody a true Jew. Not just ethnicity. Not ethnicity, not uh, not race, not anything other than trusting in God. So although Israel was given all those privileges, only those who trust in him are truly Israel at heart. And he even goes on to say that actually, even all the descendants of Abraham aren't even ethnically uh, Israel, because God says that it was Isaac who the nation of Israel would come through. So it would, it would trickle down from Abraham, but then it would go and take a turn and, and go th- come through Isaac. So it wouldn't come through all of Abraham's children. It didn't come through Ishmael, but it came through Isaac. So even all of those who are ethnically Israel are not actually Israel. But he says it's not the ones of physical descent. It's the ones who uh, are children of the promise the ones who have trusted in God and the ones who have, in this case, come through uh, Isaac. So in verse 10, he picks up and says, not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's, and this is important, the sentence is important, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, the Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, of course, this was this is before they're even born, before Jacob and, and Esau are even born. Uh, actually, he says that in verse 10, like we just read. Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father, Isaac, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad. And then he goes on to say the important sentence. So, Jacob was loved by God. Esau was hated by God even before they were born. Uh, Before we get into the sentence that I said was important, which was in order that God's purpose and election might stand, um, I did want to break down the Jacob I loved and Esau I hated a little bit because sometimes we try to take the way that we use modern terms and we try to force them onto the biblical text. So when it says Esau I hated, This does not mean that God despised Esau. In fact, when you read through the narrative in Genesis, he clearly did not despise Esau. In fact, Esau was the father of a nation, the Edomites. Uh, Edomites comes from, if you remember, when uh, Esau had traded his birthright to Jacob for red stuff, for some kind of red soup. Um, 
probably the worst trade of all time, by the way. Uh, that's just, I mean, come on. I could see like a steak or pizza or something like that, but uh, yeah, red stuff. Some 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 translations just say red stuff. They don't even say what it was. Uh, but anyway, that's where Adam came from. His name, Adam, which means red. So anyway, he was the father of a nation, and God protected his nation. If we look at uh, not only the the narrative in Genesis, but if we look at Deuteronomy chapter 2, uh, he talks about how they would pass by the Edomites. And if we go down a little bit uh, to, this is in Deuteronomy chapter 2, let's go to verse 21. It says, they were people strong and numerous and as tall as the Anakites. This is about the uh the Raphaites, but it says the Lord destroyed them for the Lord destroyed them from before the Ammonites who drove them out and settled in their place. And now verse 22, the Lord had done the same for the descendants of Esau who lived in Seir when he destroyed the Horites from before them. They drove them out and have lived in their place to this day. So Esau's people, his nation, they're given a place, they're given, and in fact, when they moved to their land, the reason they needed bigger land in Genesis is because they had so much stuff that they couldn't even fit it in their land. They had cattle and all kinds of stuff that couldn't even fit it. So they're given this land, and now God even drove out the enemies of Esau's descendants from their land. So we can't just take a word from a text and then infer, uh, enforce our uh, cultural understanding onto the text. Hated does not mean despised in the way that we would use it. It's sort of like in the New Testament when Jesus says, if you're going to love me, you have to hate your family. You have to hate your mother and father. Well, he doesn't mean that literally. Uh, I mean, he doesn't mean literally hate them in the sense that we would use it, despise. He means you have to love me more than you love them. And in a sense, that is what God is uh, doing here, at least in a practical sense of service. What we're going to see looking at Romans 9 here is it says almost nothing about salvation. So far, there has been nothing about salvation up to this point. And I'm going to go over that verse 11 we mentioned in just a second. But he's not talking about salvation. He's talking about people chosen for his service. So he says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now let's look back at, uh, with that in mind, verse 11, just a couple verses back. Uh, he says, yet before the twins were born, that's Jacob and Esau, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. So it's not talking about salvation here. It's talking about God's purpose in election, election to service. Election means chosen. When you elect something, you're choosing it. Like when we have an election and we elect a president or a governor, we are choosing the next president or governor. So generally, when the Bible uses a term election, it's not talking about somebody being elected to salvation. It's about somebody being elected to service to God. It's sort of like when we talked about predestination. Uh, I'll link that episode in the description below. If you haven't heard it, it would be helpful to listen to it. Uh, but it, it, the Bible never talks about anybody being predestined to salvation or away from salvation. What the Bible talks about is somebody who is saved is someone who is predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. It's someone who is predestined to receive every spiritual blessing. It is someone who is predestined uh, to be made holy and blameless. 
And so predestination is something the Christian believer receives. It's not something uh, ever used in the Bible to refer to or away from salvation. It has nothing to do with salvation in the terms in terms of obtaining salvation. Well, it's the same thing here in Romans 9. There is not a single verse we've come across so far that is about salvation. Not one. So he says, In order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls. So God chooses who he wants to choose to use. But we also get to choose to reject God's service. Let's look at uh, a verse quickly from 2 Peter 1. Uh, We're going to read verse 10, but I'll read the verse before it because that'll help us uh, with our point here. Verse 9 says, But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So he's talking about somebody who's been cleansed from their past sins, right? If you read um, chapter 2 up to this point, that's obvious. So he's talking about someone who's saved, someone who's uh, cleansed from their past sins. In verse 10, though, listen to this. He says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters... Make every effort to confirm your calling and election. So he says, make every effort to confirm your election and your calling. Well, if you're going to make the point or the argument that every time elections used in Scripture, or even generally when it's used in Scripture, it's referring to salvation, well, then what you end up here is you end up with Mormonism or you end up with Roman Catholicism. You end up with a gospel that's faith and works-based. If you're going to say confirm your election by making an effort, that's the complete opposite of what the Protestant Christian believes. But what first or what Second Peter 1.10 is saying here is that we are to make every effort to make our calling complete, the calling to God's service. Remember, who's he talking to here? He's talking to the believer. He's not talking to an unbeliever. He's not talking about uh, inheriting salvation or being given salvation. He's talking to the person who's saved and saying that election, in this sense, is election to God's service. There is no way to interpret that verse any other way, at least not naturally. So he says, before Esau and Jacob had done anything wrong, they were elect to service in the way that God chose. He chose that he was going to use Jacob for the nation of Israel, and he chose that he was going to use Esau uh, for the the nation of the Edomites, the descendants of Esau. So, but Jacob was going to be the one that was that was used for God's people, for for Israel, for his nation. It's not about salvation, and in the passage in Hebrews eleven about, um, or is it Hebrews twelve about? Esau seeking repentance with tears. It's again, it's not talking about salvation. There's no context in the Old Testament that you can take that and pair it with and say, see, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about him regretting giving up his birthright uh, to Jacob. So let's go on. He says in verse 14, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So again, when you read verse 14, if you read it out of context, completely on its own, then sure, you might say, well, then maybe this is about salvation. We can't call God unjust because he gets to have mercy on whoever he wants. And even if he has mercy on one person, he's merciful because he's the only one who's good. Well, that's true. But I don't believe scripture tells us God has chosen to do things that way. He says, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. And God is not unjust for that. 
Amen. God will have mercy on whom he wants and he'll have compassion on whom he wants. But God also tells us who he wants to have mercy and compassion on. And so we're going to get into that. Um, But keep that verse in mind and pick up at verse 16. It says, it does not, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. So the it in verse 16, it does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Well, that's certainly true of salvation. Every Christian would have to agree with that. So uh, salvation is a gift that comes through faith. Um, That's undeniable. But this passage in this section is not talking about salvation. There's nothing here that's talking about salvation. So he says, it does not depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Well, what doesn't depend on it? Salvation? No. God's mercy and compassion. That's just in the verse, two words before this. God's mercy and compassion don't depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. So again, it's another verse that's not about salvation. God used Pharaoh to glorify his own name. Now, there's a lot to this, actually, and it's very interesting. We'll, we'll pick up on the Divine Council series stuff again uh, sometime probably in the near future, because when you read Exodus, it's a spiritual battle that's going on. And even Pharaoh was considered the son of the sun God. So it's like you have the true son of God, the angel of the Lord, versus Pharaoh, uh, the false son of God. So we'll, we'll touch on all that when we get into the Divine Council series again. Um, but the idea here is that God used Pharaoh to glorify himself. He, he put Pharaoh to shame and glorified himself. But what happened when you read the, the, the story of Pharaoh? He hardened his own heart several times before God hardened his heart. So God didn't just come out of the blue and harden his heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And just like we see in Romans 1, God handed Pharaoh over to his sinfulness. God said, okay, I tried and I tried and I tried and you're not willing. I even took your firstborn son and you're still not willing. Well, then I'm just going to hand you over. I'm done with you. Which doesn't, it doesn't say anywhere that Pharaoh still couldn't have repented. Um, I believe he could have, but still God says, okay, I'm done with you. My hands are clean. I have, I have given you all the mercy and compassion uh, that you need and you've still rejected me. It's the same thing at Babel when he hands the nations over to the lesser Elohim. He says, I've given you everything that you need. Uh, I have come to you over and over and over and you've rejected me. And same when Jesus holds out his hands like the mother hen to Israel and they still reject him. So this is rejection. Pharaoh did the, the, the very same thing. So he says, therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. He goes on and says, one of you will say to me, and this is actually very important. It says, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But are you a human being to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? So pause for a second here. He can make out of the same lump of clay, some for special purposes and some for common use. Well, Paul's continuing the same thought here. That's exactly what God did with Jacob and Esau. He used Jacob, he used uh, Esau for common use and Esau still had a nation. He still had protection. He still had blessing from God, but he didn't get to be 
a patriarch. He didn't get to be used by God in this mighty way uh, with the line that the Messiah would come through. But Jacob, on the other hand, did. He was used for special purposes. God made him to be used for special purposes, and God made Esau to be used for purposes that weren't so special for common use. And God has every right to do that. And God did do that. And so we're not to talk back to God for that. But what you see here, and we're just, we're going to pick up in a second at verse 22. But what you see here uh, is that I actually think the view, remember, we haven't seen anything about salvation here. In the view that says God is narrowing salvation to who he chooses and to whom he rejects. Um, and that would be predestination, pre, double predestination in the common usage would be that God chooses who will be saved and he chooses who he will reject and will be punished. Um, predestination is just that out of the lump of those who are already unsaved, which is everybody, he chooses out of that lump uh, those who will be saved, like a remnant. Um, and so I, I, I don't actually agree with either of those. I agree that he gives us the choice uh, and he, he is the one who seeks us. He's the one who reaches out, but we have to respond with faith. Um, but regardless, that's that's basically the view of predestination or double predestination. So the point of the, the point I'm making here is that in that view, you have God narrowing salvation to who he chooses. And, and basically the way that this would be interpreted in that sense would be, well, even if God only chooses a few to have mercy on and to have compassion on, well, he's not unjust for doing that. Uh, and if I was convinced of that view, I would agree. I agree with that in general. He, God wouldn't be unjust for doing that. But I actually don't think that that's what's happening here. The, the context of this chapter is not salvation. Rather, what's going on here, and we're going to see this toward the end of the chapter, especially in verse 25. And so this is just a little sneak peek. But what God's actually doing is, is he's widening not only salvation, but he's widening who he's going to use for his purpose now. Because his people Israel have rejected him for so long, for thousands of years, they killed every prophet he sent, and they finally killed his own son, and now they're even going on to persecute Christians and to kill apostles. Remember, this is being written to Rome, where eventually Christians are going to be used as human candles uh, and, and beheaded in arenas if they're not already being, if that's not already happening during this book. So this is who he's writing to. And so what God's doing is he's widening who he's going to be using for his purpose now, and that's the Gentiles. It doesn't mean, now whether or not you believe it's the Jews instead of the Gentiles, or it's the Jews and the Gentiles, makes no difference. The idea, though, is he's widening the funnel, he's widening his camp, and he's saying, I'm going to be including Gentiles for my purpose, and I'm going to be using them to glorify my name. In fact, the Apostle Paul, he's writing both to Jews and Gentiles in the book of Romans. It's actually a very unique book. But he calls himself the Apostle to the Gentiles. So what's actually happening here is it's not that God's limiting salvation and he's saying, well, who are you to question me? I can limit salvation if I want. What it is in the context of this chapter, with the Jewish people complaining at first, saying, well, has God, God's word failed? Has his promise failed? Because why aren't we all saved? How come we're not you know, getting all this? Well, God's saying, I'm choosing to use the Gentiles for my purpose now. Who are you to question me? Who are you to talk back to God? You, a mere human being. Who are you to say that my will should be different? I will form and use whoever I want for whatever I want. That's the Nick paraphrase, okay, of, uh, of Romans 9, 16 through 21. 
But that's what's going on here. He's saying, who are you to question me? I'll use whoever I want to use. And if that's the Gentiles, and so be it. That's what God's chosen. So he goes on and says, what if God, this is verse 22, what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared, who he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also, this is a key, also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. So he clearly has the Gentiles in view here. And when he's talking about these lumps for uh, a common usage and a lump for a, a great purpose, well, Israel was, was crafted in that way. They were given that great purpose. They were going to be used. They were used for a great purpose, and they, that would have continued on. But God's deciding that he's going to now include the Gentiles, and he's handing it over to them. Whether exclusively or not, again, doesn't matter in your view. Uh, but he's handing this over to them. He's now including the Gentiles. The ones who were once just for common use are now being used for God's glory. Now, when Paul references the potter and the clay, uh, he's not just making this analogy up out of thin air. He's actually referencing uh, Jeremiah 18. So let's take a look at Jeremiah 18, the potter and the clay. And starting at verse 1, it says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making uh, of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand. That's important. And he reworked it into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to do. Then the word of the Lord came to me. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter has done? Declares the Lord. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, and if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will build and plant it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, then I will relent of the good that I had intended to do to it. And so uh, this is verse 11. Now, therefore, say to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord, behold, I am shaping disaster against you and devising a plan against you. Return everyone from his evil way and amend your ways and your deeds. So this is a call to, this is me talking, by the way, Bible's done here. Uh, this is a call to repentance that God is making to his people. And this is the same situation that Israel is in uh, after the crucifixion of Christ, after killing all the prophets and now finally crucifying the Messiah. But Paul, Paul uses these same elements from this uh, potter's house story in Jeremiah 18 in Romans 9 with Israel, even up to the point where even if God decides to destroy you, so what? He gets to do that if he wants. But God is always willing that everybody should repent. All should come to repentance. All should desire uh, him and put their faith in him. So he says, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And just before this, remember, Paul said, 
even us whom he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So now he's talking about the Gentiles. And he picks up and says, and in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. So remember, in a sense, all of Israel was elect, but not all of Israel is saved. And we see that right here. The number of Israelites is like the sand of the sea, but only a remnant, only a small leftover amount will be saved. So even though all of Israel is elect, not all of Israel is saved. Um, And let's just finish verse 29. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like uh, Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal? Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And this is virtually the first time in the whole chapter uh, righteousness is mentioned. So if there's one thing I hope you get out of this, it is that God is not narrowing salvation and just choosing certain people to be saved. He's widening, rather, not only salvation, but he's widening who he will use for his purpose, who he will elect to his purpose, who he will use for his service. Uh, and if anyone has an issue with that, if God's chosen people had an issue with that, then who are they to question God and who are we to question God? So I hope that this is helpful. Uh, I hope this makes a little bit more sense having gone through the chapter here. If you still have any questions, please send them to information at apologetics.org. And like I said, this is best taken if we look at 9 through 11, but there's a lot there. Um, So if, if you haven't done that, read chapters 9 through 11 of Romans. Um, You can do it right now, do it for your Bible reading, whenever you might do that. But you will find it very helpful because when you see the whole puzzle piece together, it makes a lot more sense. Um, But you'll see in in 9 through 11 that God is talking about service here. He's not talking about salvation. Um, So hopefully that was a helpful exposition, a brief exposition of Romans 9. Uh, And again, any questions you have, send them to information at apologetics.org. And we'll see you back here next week, Monday night at 6 p.m. on The Universe Next Door.